The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Hello, everyone. We're going to be reading from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Uh, it should be behind me, and uh, I'm, I'm going to read it from here. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd uh, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the reading of God's word. Well, Palm Sunday has been celebrated for centuries by Christians across the world. Uh, right now, across the world, people who are have vastly different skin colors, speaking vastly different languages, meeting in vastly different buildings or no buildings. Is that how spoiled we are as Americans? Like, we heard that we're not going to have the, a school, and like, we're like, what are we going to do? Like, well, we could have just gathered anywhere. Like, the rest of the church across the world is gathering under trees and in huts and lean-tos, but, but they're gathering all across the world celebrating Palm Sunday, and we have been for centuries. And the question is, like, why? What's the big deal? Like, other than, like, you know, I think sometimes if you've been around church for a while, maybe we view it as, like, the rehearsal for Easter, right? Like, uh, hey, we're going to come and we're going to make some decorations, and it's going to be, like, the special day before the real special day that's coming a week later. But, but what's the deal with Palm Sunday? You know, why are we celebrating, and what's, 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 what's the deal? What, what's, what's going on with it? Well, it's because of the significance of what it is that we're remembering, the, the, the event that happened in Jesus' life that we're remembering, because it is incredibly pivotal and it's incredibly revealing about who he is and what he came to do. You see, Jesus had been in public service or public ministry for about three years already, but, uh, and he had been preaching, he had been teaching, he had been training leaders, and he had been healing the sick and cr- doing incredible miracles. But he had kind of been hiding in plain sight. Because, see, Jesus was from Galilee, which was sort of like the butt of the jokes of Israel, which was the butt of the jokes of the Roman Empire. Uh, Galilee, in fact, they had a, they had a, uh, a saying in, uh, in uh, Jerusalem and in the surrounding regions, can anything good f- come from Nazareth or can anything good from, come from Galilee? Galilee is where sort of the backwater where nobody wanted to be, nobody wanted to hang out, sort of like the area that I grew up south of Conway, like nobody really wanted to go there, you just passed through there, it's the butt of other people's jokes there, 
And, but Jesus had been doing these miracles, and nobody really paid much attention in the capital city of Jerusalem, which was the, sort of the economic, religious, civic. It was, the, it was the, the center of society for Israel, for the Jews. And nobody really paid attention to what Jesus had been doing. They, they had heard about it, and they had, they, had paid a, they, they, had, they had noticed, but they didn't really think that much could come from Galilee, so they didn't pay a whole lot of attention. Until now, Jesus had been coming in and out of Jerusalem, but uh, so some things had happened that started to kind of build some momentum. Uh, Jesus, his good friends who lived in Bethany, which is the village, very sort of the outskirts of the suburbs of Jerusalem, his good friends, uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, they lived there. And he had heard that Lazarus had died, and they begged him to come, and he ended up coming days later, and he came and raised Lazarus from the dead. And so when that happened, that really got people's attention. Because now they heard it, they knew that this was a legit thing. It's here on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and it's really starting to build some momentum around Jesus' ministry. And now, also, you add to it that this is Passover week. So if you think about this, this is the, the week, it's the Sunday leading into the Passover week. And, and, and as Jesus is coming in or near, nearing Jerusalem, he's been moving toward Jerusalem for a while, the people who are coming, the other pilgrims to coming to worship in Jerusalem are coming with him as well. So they're coming with him. They're coming from Galilee, spreading word about this Jesus who's been doing these incredible miracles and speaking with authority back home in Galilee. And they're coming with him. And now they're hearing about the raising of Lazarus. And the city is starting to get a little buzz to it. And he stays on this, over the Sabbath with Mary and Martha and Lazarus right on the edge. And now he's getting ready to make his way into Jerusalem here in Passover week, which is when the city would be swelled, would be swollen with tons of people coming in to worship. It's the biggest week of the year in the Jewish calendar. And as that happens, everybody ends up talking about Jesus. Everybody ends up talking about him. And yet still, nobody knows quite what to do with him. The people even coming from his own hometown are saying, hey, this Jesus guy is a prophet from Galilee. They're really excited because Galilee's got a prophet, but they're calling him a prophet. Nobody's like, like sure what to do with him. The leaders aren't sure. Hey, what are we going to do with this guy when he comes to Jerusalem? He's going to up in this whole thing. If, if he comes in and he tries to make trouble, it's going to make trouble for us because the Roman authority is going to come in and they're going to put a clamp down if the people start to go crazy. Like, what's going to happen here? Every, nobody knows quite what to do, do with Jesus, even his own family and his own disciples. His family, who he grew up around, and his disciples who had been ministering around for three years, nobody quite knows quite what to do with Jesus. His disciples have been begging him, hey, hey, let's do it now. Let's overtake, let's overtake and overthrow the Roman authorities and kick them out of Jerusalem and kick them out of Israel. And finally, you can be king and we can set up your, your rule and reign here. And he's always putting them off. His family try to come and get him and pull him away because they think he is actually insane. Nobody knows quite what to do with Jesus. And you know what? That really hasn't changed through the years. It's hard to figure out what to do with Jesus, isn't it? He's the one figure in history that stands above all the other figures. The truth is, every single person on planet Earth has to figure out what do you do with Jesus. And the interesting thing that happens here as he enters Jerusalem is he, not only do we all have to figure out what to do with him, but he paints us all in a corner and he says, you either have to worship me and bow to me as king 
or you have to reject me as a crazy man. But he has to do one of those. We're going to look at three things that Jesus shows us or reveals about himself after he's been hiding in plain sight. Now he makes his triumphant or triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're going to see three things that Jesus reveals about himself this morning. First of all, we're going to see that Jesus reveals that he is king. Secondly, that Jesus reveals that he's a humble king. And thirdly, that Jesus reveals that he's a powerful king. Jesus reveals that he is a king, actually in the correct order is, Jesus reveals that he is a powerful king, and thirdly, Jesus reveals that he is a humble king. First up, Jesus reveals that he is king. Now, Jesus had been, this whole time, uh, he spent his last leg of his ministry working his way towards Jerusalem. Uh, he, he's been staying with his friends in Bethany during the Sabbath, and now he's just recently raised Lazarus from the dead, so it's got a lot of people's attention, and now he's finally ready to enter Jerusalem, and people are worked up to a fever pitch. See this, verse 1 of chapter 21 of Matthew, Matthew 21, 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage in the Mount, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you. Bethany and Bethphage are, are right beside each other. Uh, go to the, to the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what this was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, he's quoting uh, both Isaiah and Zechariah here, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now there's some things that are going on that would be easy to miss here if you're not really paying attention, if you don't know what is going on. You see, this, this is a very big deal what happens here because when Jesus stops and they're getting ready to go into Jerusalem and he tells these two disciples, hey, go into this village and we don't know how this, what was going on with this. He said, go into this village and you're going to find a donkey and her unridden, unbroken colt. Bring them here to me and if anybody asks you, what are you doing, you just tell them, my master needs them. Now, what we don't know is, did Jesus set this up in advance? Did he have a conversation with the owner? Or does he just divinely know and is operating in some sort of divine power where he knows where they're going to be, and he says, if you just tell them the master needs them, that's, that's like the password. And so can you imagine these disciples? They don't know what's going on. Jesus doesn't say anything more than that. He just says, go into that village, and they're walking the village, and, and walking up to a donkey and her, and, her, and her colt would be like walking up to somebody's car and getting in the car and cranking it, like he says, hey, you'll find the keys in the car. Go ahead and crank it and bring it to me. And if somebody asks you, what are you doing with your car, just say, the Lord needs it, and it'll be okay, and bring it to me. 
Can you imagine how they would feel as those disciples? He says, hey, bring them to me. And then the, the, the picture here would not be lost on the people that are traveling with him. As he, as he rides on an unbroken colt, fulfilling a prophecy that was prophesied about the messianic king or the, the king, the great king that was prophesied to come to the Jews to deliver them and to make them safe finally. And he comes and he rides into, Beth, into, into Jerusalem from Bethany on the back of this colt. Everybody would have known what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm king. Jesus is entering Jerusalem saying, I am the king. He claims kingship right off the bat. Here's the interesting thing about Jesus. We're going to get to a minute. He's incredibly humble. He's incredibly humble. But yet, in his humility, he also claims all the authority that comes with being the almighty creator God. He doesn't back down from that a bit. And it's not a lack of humility for him to claim that because that is what he is. He is the king of all creation and all the universe and all of eternity. He's the one who thought the universe into being. He's the one who upholds the world by the word of his power. He's the almighty creator God. And he claims kingship over the universe, over eternity, and over your life and my life without, without apology at all. He doesn't say, hey, would you vote for me? He says, I am king. I am king. And that leaves us in an awkward place, isn't it? Because either the Jesus that was sitting on the back of that colt, riding into Jerusalem, either he is the Messiah who the Jews have been waiting for, either he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords coming to his city in victory, or He's either a megalomaniac or some sort of crazy man. He's either claiming some sort of power that he does not have, or he's a megalomaniac trying to make a big deal. He's one of those things. There can't be any in between. He is one of those things. Jesus claims kingship by the way that he rides into Jerusalem on the back of the colts, fulfilling the prophecy. He claims kingship and he accepts the praise or the kingly accolades from the people. In verses 7 through 9, it says they brought the, the donkey and the colt and put them on and put on them their cloaks. That's the disciples, and he sat on them, and then most of the crowd, so imagine, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, there's a crowd surrounding him, there's a crowd going before him, and a crowd behind him, they're all heading into Jerusalem, and this crowd is before him, and there's a crowd that's behind him, all of a sudden they start to worship him and celebrate him as king, or as the Messiah, the Messianic king, shouting, Hosanna, so this word Hosanna would have been a word that meant, it literally meant save us, but it had become over time this word that meant, that was wrapped up into it. It's saying save us, but it's also saying, hey, you are the Messiah who has the power to save us. And then they call him the son of David, which was absolutely a title for the Messiah who was to come. So the people who are traveling with Jesus into Jerusalem are worshiping him and celebrating him and heralding him as king, and they're also heralding him as the Messiah who they have been waiting for sent by God. And Jesus does not defer them. He does not like denounce them. He does not say, oh, shucks, not me. Who, me? He absolutely sits there in the back of the colt and accepts their praise and their accolades as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
Jesus declares himself king as he comes in Jerusalem, and Jesus accepts the accolades and the praise and the worship of the people around him as king. And here's the thing that is true for all of us, is that kingship, Jesus' kingship in particular, always forces a response. It always forces a response. There's no way that you can like, there's, there's no way to half do a king. He is either king or he is not. And we have to respond to Jesus as he's walking in or riding into Jerusalem, declaring himself as the Messiah, as the long-awaited king, accepting the praise of the people around him. We, somehow, we have to figure out how do we respond to him. Do we respond to him the way a king rightfully deserves? Or do we reject that kingship? But we have to figure out something. See, here's the thing about kingship, is it, it's dominating and invasive by nature. Kingship is dominating and invasive by nature. When a king walks into a room of, a, of his subjects, he is not taking a temperature of this room. He's not trying to figure out, does anybody like, like me today? Are they going to keep me king today? He's walking in and he is king. And you accept it and you bow to the king or you have the full power of the kingship and the, and the actual uh, country, the government roll upon you until you actually, actually are forced to acknowledge him as king. But it's one way or the other. Kingship is dominating and it is invasive by nature. Kingship doesn't ask permission. Kingship doesn't say, hey, are you guys okay? Uh, you guys okay if I, if I build a new, a new castle? I'm going to make it really big. Are you guys okay with that? A king just does what he wants to do. Because a king exercises sovereign rule and sovereign authority over the kingdom that he's ruling over. You know what sovereignty is? It's hard for us as Americans to grasp this idea. Because we elect people and we run public opinion polls about everything that's done. But a king doesn't have to go with the wind and how the people's opinion are. He is king, and he is sovereign, and he does whatever he pleases. And that's who Jesus is. He is the king. And here's the truth. Kingship isn't something that you acknowledge, that you, hey, hey, Jesus, I think you're king. I'll give you that. I'll make you king in my life. Kingship is something that you experience. Kingship is something where you come before the presence of the almighty creator God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler of heaven and earth, who spun the world into existence, who holds the moon and stars in their places, who keeps the earth held together at the very atomic level. You come before him and you bow before him as king of kings and lord of lords. You experience his power and his kingship or you experience his power and his kingship in a way that is not pleasant, but you experience it one way or the other. Kingship isn't something that you acknowledge. It's something that you experience. Jesus rolls into Jerusalem in the back of that cult. And he comes in humble, but he comes in absolutely declaring himself as king. He is king of kings and he's lord of lords. 
where are you with him with that? You see, there's this thing inside every single one of us. It happens from the very beginning. You don't have to teach a kid how to say no or how to rebel. It just comes naturally. And ever since we were born, this sin nature in us that's inherited from our great-great-grandfathers, Adam and Eve, there's this sin nature where we want to rule and reign our own lives. We want to call the shots. We want to say what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. But yet Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And you, you will not experience true freedom until you stop trying to fight a battle to remain king of your own life and you bow to the one who is actually king and the one who is actually Lord. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding the colt. He declares that he is king, but then he also reveals that he is a powerful king. He doesn't just say, I'm king. He says, I'm a powerful king. See, the truth is, we, we don't just need a king. We need and we want, at the very basis of who we are, we want a king, we want a ruler who is powerful. And this is how powerful Jesus is. So, so think about this. He's coming into Jerusalem, riding on the back of this, of this colt, and he's coming off where just not long before this, a man who would have been dead for four days, and Jesus walks to the tomb, everybody's crying around him. He says, open the tomb, and he calls out for his friend, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came out. Hey, he's not just the king of the kings and the Lord of lords that spun the world into existence. He's the Lord of life and the Lord of death. When he commands someone even who had been dead for four days to come out of the grave, they come. He's a man, he's a king of incredible authority. Not only that, but right before we see his entry into Jerusalem, we also see that he encounters these, uh, these two blind guys, and they're crying out to Jesus as he's walking by. They, and they call out before the rest of the crowd does, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus comes to them and says, What do you want me to do for you? And they say, we, we want to be healed, and he says that he has pity upon them, and he heals them and gives them their sight back. He raised the dead to life. He healed the blind. And then, do you see the beauty of this? Even the way he enters into Jerusalem, he orchestrates, he's the king, but he orchestrates his own entry into Jerusalem. Isn't that cool? He's the one who knows where the cult is. He tells his disciples to go and find them and has the authority to say, the Lord has need of them if anybody asks you and bring them to me. He orchestrates the, his whole entry himself into Jerusalem. He doesn't work up the crowd, but he does orchestrate all the events himself. He is a powerful, powerful king. And then it tells us that whenever he gets into Jerusalem, what does he do? He goes to the temple. He goes into the temple and he sees that the people are, are in there and they're bartering and trading in the outer court of the temple. And he 
remembers how God said, my temple shall be a house of prayer for all people. And he is stirred and he gets angry and he comes in, this one man against all these people gathered in the courts, bartering and selling, making their living. So they're not just going to like, like stand by, like idly by and say, oh, Jesus, you're turning over my business, like his, their businesses. Jesus comes through and he turns over the tables and nobody will stand before him because he's a powerful king. He exercises absolute and utter authority and power. He says he treats it like his own temple, which is exactly what it was. This house, my house, will be a house of prayer for all people. And when he does that and he enters into Jerusalem, he enters into Jerusalem with authority and power like no one had ever seen before. It tells us here in verse in verse. 10, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this guy? Like, not, there, there, I mean, there's lots of things included in that. Uh, there would be some like, who does he think he is? Like, this is a, this is a guy from Backwater Galilee? What is, what is he doing coming in here doing this? But yet they're also asking, who is this? Because he has a power and authority that we've never seen before. We, we, hear, we see other parts of the Gospels where it says that Jesus was teaching and somebody walked away from him and said, he is teaching with an authority. Not like the teachers of the law that we have. He's teaching like, like it's his word that he's saying, like it's self in him, like the power is, is and authority is within him, which it was. People are saying, who is this that the wind and waves obey him? That's what the disciples asked. When there was the storm and they were afraid they were going to go down with the ship and Jesus had been left behind and also they see somebody they think is a ghost walking across the water and, they see, and then they find out it's Jesus and Simon jumps out and he ends up sinking and he pulls him back up and Jesus gets in the boat and he's, he's walking on water in the storm. Not just walking on water, in a storm. How do you walk on water in a storm? Like it's not like, like, like glass, like he's, there's waves and there's wind and he walks through like it's nothing. He saves Simon, gives him the power and ability to walk on water with him, brings him back to the goat, the boat. He brings him back to the boat. Yeah, I don't know. That's not in the Bible. They bring him back to the boat and his disciples who have been living with him and walking with him for years say, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey? Who is this man? He's the almighty, all-powerful king. Who is this man? That's the question every single one of us have to answer for ourselves. Who is this man? Is he the king that he claims to be and that we see shown to us in scripture? Or is he some megalomaniac or some crazy person? But he's one of those things again. Who is this man? Because if what we're celebrating today actually happened, and it happened the way that we are told that it happened, then there's only one person that he can be. The son of God the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Almighty One. Who is this? 
See, the idea of a, of a powerful king ruling and reigning on, over my life, let's just be honest, it can be a little bit off-putting, can it? Like, most of us aren't jumping up and down when we think about the idea that someone wants to rule and reign my life. You know some of the worst arguments my wife and I get into? Uh, other than the big stuff. It's usually about little things where I don't like her telling me what to do or she doesn't like me telling her what to do or how to do it. She came through the living room of the day and I had my shoes on and I had the, my, my shoes up on the coffee table and she's like, take those off the coffee table. And you know what I thought in my head? Sorry, baby. She, I, I thought, I thought, woman, woman, who are you to tell me I can't put my shoes on this coffee table? I can put my shoes on this coffee, ta- coffee table if I very well blank please. Can I say that in this church, Dale? Yes. I, I'm going to do that. Of course, I didn't say any of those things, and I pulled my shoes off the table. Whatever, have you ever seen yourself in an argument with a friend or a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend, and you, you figure out, like, this is really a middle school argument. It's kind of embarrassing that it's devolved into this. Like, doors are slamming, and... China's flying around the house, and I had these friends who, when they would fight, it would usually be about who had to uh, clean the, uh, had to clean up after dinner, and more than once, it ended up with them grabbing the pots that ha- still had the leftover food inside and throwing it out the back door into the woods behind their house. That was their way of like, hey, I'm not going to do it. You're not going to tell me I have to do it. I'll just go buy new pots and pans, dang it. I'm going to throw these into the bushes. Have you ever seen yourself? You're like, these are the things we fight over. Do you know why? Because we don't want anybody to tell me what to do and how to do it. And you know why we don't like that? Because that's what we were made to do. As human beings, we are made to wield authority, but only under the safety of being under authority. Human beings, and we have shown this time and time again, are very bad at having authority when they don't have any accountability above them. You heard that saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely? It doesn't actually corrupt absolutely. It just reveals the corruption that we have within us absolutely. We were made to wield authority, but only under the greater authority of God over us, the almighty creator God. And we kick and scream against it because the sin nature within us does not want anybody around us to tell us what to do. But yet, the truth is, we were not made for independence. Here's the truth you may not want to hear this morning. You were not made for independence. You were not made to be the master of your own domain. You weren't made to call your own shots. You were made to worship and to serve the almighty, all-powerful king, King Jesus. We were made for authority, but only as we were under authority. Jesus came and he revealed that he is king, he revealed that he is a powerful king, but lastly, Jesus revealed that he's a humble king. And here's where the story gets really beautiful. 
Jesus came and he revealed his power to us, but he didn't do it like other powerful kings did or would. See, a a human being who's king wants to flex his muscles and show people just how powerful and great he is. And so usually when a king would ride into his capital city or a or as somebody who wants to become king and is going to overthrow the government or overthrow the current ruler or the current king, when they're coming into the city, just, they want to flex their muscles. They want to get the people behind them. And so they're going to show just how powerful and great that they are. And so what they would do is they would have their souped-up war horse. Now this is like 0 to 60 in 2.3 seconds. Like this is like this is like that kind of war horse. They're going to bring in the most beautiful, most amazing horse. They're going to deck the horse out with incredible uh, armament around it. They're going to bring in their army around them. They're going to come in and they're going to showcase. They're going to be decked out. They're going to show you, I am a mighty king. And yet Jesus, how does he enter into the city? He enters on the back of an unbroken young donkey the foal or the colt of a beast of burden. So the, the, the closest equivalent that I can think of that that would be like is in, instead of riding in on a tank or riding in on, on a hum, in a Humvee, Jesus rode into Jerusalem in like driving a beat up pickup truck. Because a, 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 a beast of burden was used for work. Uh, they would, there were p- people in Jerusalem that would ride them, and it wasn't, a, like, it wasn't any embarrassing thing to ride. It was not an embarrassing thing to, ri- to drive a, a pickup truck or a beat-up pickup truck, but just not a conquering king. A conquering king wouldn't do that. But Jesus rides in on the back of an unbroken beast of burden. And he, in doing so, he's declaring I'm not the kind of king that you expected me to come in as. I'm not the kind of king who's going to conquer with an army. I'm not the kind of king that's going to, even though I am incredibly powerful, that's not the way I'm going to overcome. I'm coming into Jerusalem, and he'd been telling the disciples for weeks now, I'm going to Jerusalem in order to suffer, to be betrayed, and to die. And I will be raised again. He enters absolutely and utterly defenseless into Jerusalem, knowing that he has enemies there. He's not surrounded by the rich and powerful. He's not surrounded by an army. He's surrounded by the low and the meek and the poor. We're told that in other Gospels, that the leaders are standing around seeing the people celebrate Jesus, and they're like, hey, aren't you going to stop them? And Jesus says, if I stop them, the rocks themselves will cry out. The leak, the, the meek and the lowly and the poor are welcoming in, him in. Not the powerful, not the rich, not the military. Because you know who recognizes that they need a king and most readily bows before the king? It's those who recognize that they themselves are lowly and poor and weak and in need of a king. They're standing around him, leading him in Jerusalem. He comes in absolutely defenseless, absolutely without anything to protect himself. And he comes, he told the disciples in Matthew 16, 
verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Again, in Matthew 20, the chapter right before this, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, see, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's him, will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. See, Jesus was going into Jerusalem as the king, as incredibly powerful, but he's coming in incredibly humble because he's coming in to be the suffering servant king. He would be the king who would stand in a place between you and me and receive the blows that you and I deserve for our sin, for our rebellion and our treason against God and would bear that on the cross for us that would die and pay the penalty that you and I deserved in death and then again on the third day will be raised again to newness of life so that those of us who bow before him as king and accept his sacrifice on our behalf would know that we have eternal life ahead of us that is never ending and nothing can overcome because our king has gone before us and has suffered on our behalf and has conquered the real enemies that we had, which were ourselves, which was our own sin and our own rebellion against God. And he came and he conquered what none of us can conquer, but he came humbly to do so. This is a long passage, but listen to this, Isaiah 53, 3 through 7. He was despised and rejected by men. This is a prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus would come. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are all healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's where Jesus was heading as he rode that young, unbroken donkey into Jerusalem. The king, the almighty king, but yet the humble king, to come and pay as a human being to suffer on our behalf so that we might be made whole. So what do you do with this Jesus? What do you do with this Jesus? Not the Jesus of our imagination or the Jesus that we grew up hearing about maybe in Sunday school, but what do you do with this Jesus who is incredibly powerful, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and yet he is the suffering servant on our behalf. What do we do with this Jesus? And maybe more importantly for us to ask is, what does this Jesus do with you? Isn't that a better question? Because you and I don't sit in, judge, in the judgment seat over Jesus. He's the king. 
What does he do with you and with me? And him entering Jerusalem humbly and suffering on our behalf shows us what he will do with us if we come to him. If we bow before him as king, if we accept his work for us, he will in no way turn us away, but he will always bring us in. Only the most powerful king could enter a city like Jesus did here. Only the most powerful king could humble himself like Jesus was humbling himself here and was going to this holy week that we're getting ready to celebrate. Only the most powerful and humblest king would sacrifice for us. Only the most powerful and humblest king could raise again from the dead. And only the most powerful and humblest king could be worthy of our unending love and devotion. You see, here's the truth. King Jesus' power will cause us to, to at least acknowledge him, but his humility will stir us to love him.